Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer Carly Shepard. Gabe, I want to play you some music. Have you ever heard of this? Just got a road we scurving, double tapping the back with the German. Caught me up, one on the window, back out the spinner and bursting. Not this drill song, but I can definitely get sturdy to this. <laughs> this song is from a drill rap group, and believe it or not, the music we're hearing sparked a huge debate in London. Some members of the group are also in gangs, so a lot of the lyrics threaten their rivals. About five years ago, the London Metropolitan Police asked YouTube and Instagram to scrub their platforms of drill music videos. Wow. So the police were asking YouTube and Instagram to censor this music? That's right. This sounded like 19th century stuff to me. Author, human rights lawyer, and journalist Eric Berkowitz was also shocked by this degree of censorship. Wait, wait. Class? Censorship? YouTube? Uh, What? So he got right to work and started writing his most recent book. It's called Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship from the Ancients to Fake News. As the title implies, it covers about 2,000 years of global censorship history. We went back to the first censorship events that I could think of, and that started effectively, you know, with the formation of language itself. So clearly censorship is not a new concept. Exactly. Think about all the ways censorship plays out today. We're seeing an increase in banned books. Debates about freedom of speech play out online and on our own college campuses. Maybe you've witnessed this yourself. These debates are relevant to each and every one of us because we all have to speak every day. In person, online, and on podcasts like this one. We also have to listen to others speak every day and often about things that we disagree with. So speech has an incredible unifying potential as well as an enormous capacity for polarization. This is part of what makes free speech issues worth paying attention to. Dangerous Ideas begins in ancient China with an account of Qi Shi Huang. He's known as the first emperor of China and remains the nation's namesake. He was in power for about a decade, from 221 to 210 BCE. He unified seven disparate kingdoms and created the first entity that began to resemble the modern state, if you will, of China. Quite an achievement. Took a lot of brutality, boldness. But for all that, he was hated, and it drove him crazy that he was hated. And like many, many powerful leaders, had an unbelievably fragile ego. And he would travel China in disguise and hear himself criticized. And and heard himself criticized mostly by Confucian scholars and decided that rather than win hearts and minds, he would simply quarantine them. He forbade citizens from owning books, but he made an exception for himself. What he did was he gathered all the books and kept it in his own palace, but no one else was able to access books of poetry, philosophy, literature, and anyone who criticized him with examples from the past or even discussed the banned books was buried alive along with his family. And the poor guy, it didn't work. 
he went crazy. He died drinking an elixir of life, which actually killed him. And that story really struck me as incorporating so many of the themes of this book. The first emperor died by drinking something he thought would make him live forever. He was buried with 8,000 life-sized terracotta soldiers and horse figures. So other than not drinking strange elixirs of immortality, (laughs) what lessons can we learn from this figure? While providing a super extreme example of censorship, I think this story very clearly depicts the desire for control that underlies all censorship efforts, including those we see today. Eric connects the story of the first emperor to the idea of how fragile the powerful can feel. And then Shin was directly cited by the greatest censor in history, which is Mao Zedong, who said, you know, Shin Shi Wang has nothing on me. He killed 400 scholars. I killed 40,000 or whatever the numbers were. That created for me a link between something that happened 2,300 years ago and something that happened at least within my own lifetime. It's the same themes. The settings have changed. The technology has changed. But the you know human yearning to, to speak, human yearning to be known, to have their voice heard, is no less now than it was then. And also our discomfort with hearing opinions that jar us, opinions that challenge us. You know, cancel culture is the latest term for, I can't take what you're saying. The more absolute power you have, the more vulnerable you feel. And the more power requires a mask of infallibility. Not power, but infallibility. So you become brittle. That creates a compulsion to affirm your authority and to preserve the mask of infallibility. The burning of the books became not only a way for him to try and bar ideas that were led to criticize him, but became a spectacle of his own power that he could dominate the debate. So much of censorship over the years, over the centuries, has been geared towards not necessarily eliminating information, but channeling it, keeping it for the use of one group and a part of use of the other. And that that just comes out repeatedly. That's, that's fascinating to me. I'm really curious to talk about the continuity across all of these examples, right, thematically. Of course. So to jump from an example of extreme censorship to maybe a historical context that's revered as kind of an epitome in certain ways for free speech, I want to talk about ancient Greece and Athens really quickly. I found your discussion of this time period to be especially interesting because we know that civic discussion is a really essential component of Athenian life, but at the same time... The privilege of free speech is only extended to a small group of people, and it comes with a lot of limitations that are imposed upon even these philosophers and great thinkers that have stood the test of time. They faced a lot of censorship in their own era. So given that ancient Athens is in so many ways credited for the tradition of democracy and of free speech, what do you think early Greek censorship might suggest about this relationship between free speech and democracy? It's true. Life in ancient Athens, at least for the one-third or so of people who could call themselves citizens, leaving out women, slaves, foreigners, everyone else, one of the great justifications for freedom of speech is that it creates a well-informed population so they can govern themselves. You can't have democracy. People can't contribute to the welfare of their own state if they don't know what's going on. Athens was a high point of that. You were able to criticize leaders. You were able to speak your mind. Philosophers were able to, you know, apply their trade in the Agora. 
But ancient Athens also shows very starkly the limits of it all, which is that when the state or the city state or the, you know, the polis is under stress, under attack, at war, etc., all that gives way. It's one of the themes that really pervades this book and I think history is the readiness we have to jettison our most sacred rights when we feel threat. Interesting. So what happens when free speech was put to the test in ancient Athens? That's a great question. In 430 BC, Athens went to war with Sparta. This is known as the Peloponnesian War. At this same time, a really terrible plague hit Athens, but spared Sparta. People were literally dying in the streets. It was pretty hideous. Athenians thought the gods sent the plague because they were offended by citizen speech. They started pointing fingers at audacious philosophers and contrarians. And it was pretty clear to Athenians that something had irritated the gods or offended them badly. Very quickly, the scapegoats became philosophers, free thinkers, let's call it. People who were tolerated, who were irritating, who were kind of a pain in the neck when you confronted them, but now were considered threats. Philosophers such as Anaxagoras were saying that the sun maybe wasn't a god, maybe it was just a hot hunk of steel, or Protagoras, <laughs> who said, questioning whether people could even know that the gods exist. They were either exiled or sentenced to death. Wow. Sentenced to live in exile or death? Harsh. I know. These philosophers were already voicing ideas that went against the grain of popular religious belief. So once Athens was in crisis, these guys had targets on their backs. Stress breeds conformity, and conformity breeds censorship. Mm. And there were a lot of casualties. So I think what we can learn from Athens is how important it is to have popular participation in governance, but also a cautionary tale to keep track of ourselves a bit and to step back a bit. And when we're under stress, to realize that the stress is going to pass, but once rights are lost, they're not easily regained. Restricting speech that would offend Greek gods coincides with a broader censorship trend. Throughout history, religious speech has commonly been censored or at least considered controversial enough to be offensive. To talk about this more, we're going to jump ahead to examples from the Roman Empire in the 4th century. Constantine was most famous, well, famous for lots of things, but one of which is he was the first to roughly adopt Christianity and set the wheels turning for the full adoption of Christianity as the state religion of Rome later in the fourth century, but also ended the persecution of Christians, which started about a century beforehand. So if there was ever any group that suffered, let's call it violent censorship, it was the early Christians. It's famous. I mean, there's, you know, lesions of saints that were casualties of that. When Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire, did religious leaders stop censoring minority religions? Meaning, did they learn from their time as the minority? Not exactly. They learned nothing from the century and a half or so, or two centuries of censorship. What they did was simply adopt it. So very, very quickly, the Roman state began to censor pagans, which for immemorial was the matrix of religion that was part of the Roman state. Very, very quickly, conversion and censorship became a demonstration of faith a very famous expression from one monk to a potential convert in 4th century Rome. If you want to become a Christian, he said, bring me your book and I'll burn it. Religion, if you want to isolate it, is really built on doctrine, right? I can think of almost no examples when religion will tolerate 
ideas that call its basic tenets into question. So when there's a religious impulse to the censorship, it often becomes that much more savage and that much more pointed. Religion requires a monopoly of belief. Otherwise, the fragility of it sort of cracks. We've gone around the world to learn how political and religious speech can be especially susceptible to censorship. What else is typically censored? Censoring sexual or obscene speech, especially in the United States, has also been popular. But for many years, there was little censorship of this sort of material. Why is that? There was really very little censorship of sexual material throughout the ages because there was no printing. And sexual books and materials, well, one, nudity itself was not as sexualized then as it is now, but, you know, erotic materials stimulating materials uh, were often the province of the upper classes. Sexual regulation only really came into being once the printing press made it available to all. So the regulation of sexual materials is very much tied in with the efforts to keep that sexual materials away from the working classes, thinking that they had sort of a natural aggression that would be stimulated by such things. Anthony Comstock came into the scene in the mid-19th century. To say he was not a fan of pornography was an understatement. He was a singularly unpleasant person. He was a soldier in the Civil War and would raid his, you know, the co-soldiers, go in their lockers and take their liquor and pour it on the ground and pontificate to them and they beat him up. I mean, he was, a, he was just one of these characters that was just irritating and genuinely found the transmission of sexual material to be a threat. Wow. He said he's a singularly unpleasant person. <laughs> Dang. The YMCA funded him, created something called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. The Comstock Act was an achievement in the sense that it was a federal law that prevented the transmission of indecent or immoral materials in the mail. And the mail was the internet. Everything was transmitted in the mail. So that gave federal jurisdiction over any transmission of indecent or immoral materials. And that had a really broad application to not just straight up pornography, but it began to be applied to science textbooks, physiology textbooks, great literature. And the standards were if the material had let's call it a negative effect, negative in the eyes of the judges, on anyone who was susceptible to such things, then it could be banned. That means if one page aroused one person from the wrong class, effectively, then the entire book could be banned. So if I'm hearing this correctly, the Comstock Act considered just about everything to be pornography? <laughs> yep. That's exactly what Comstock wanted. Comstock became what's called a postal inspector. He had effectively full power and he used it to interfere with the mail and prosecute people and uh, was prone to hyperbole. He bragged that I confiscated you know, 25 train loads of filthy materials and all these big numbers of people who were, went to jail, etc. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question. 
I think the trajectory, even in the United States, is very interesting of periods of more censorship, periods of less censorship. So the Comstock Act and the Comstock era beneath the act seem like a really extreme instance of censorship that we might be able to point to today and say, well, it's not that bad or it's not that strict anymore. I pulled this quote from from towards the end of your book where you said that the post-war United States has become, despite bouts of backsliding, among the least regulated speech environments the world has ever known. So to pull us into this present moment, I'm curious whether you think that the United States is currently in an era of free speech backsliding. And if so, maybe when did this period begin and what would it take in order for this time period to change? Okay, so that requires someone with about 50 times the brain power I have that last question, what would it take to change? But I think I can deal with all of the others. <laughs> Historians have to be super careful about taking their study of history or even of current events to here's what's good for you. But I get where you're going. I mean, we haven't talked about what happened in the United States in World War I and to a slightly lesser extent to World War II, where the amount of censorship of political speech or opinions or you know, the darn German language itself was barred in dozens of states in World War I. The world that you and I have grown up in is absolutely transformed from that. That fact that we could stand on the street corner and just spew our opinions about anything, and unless we're about to cause a riot, be fine with it, is in effect a free speech paradise. And we really forget just how remarkable that is. Seditious libel was pretty well, although I've got a dozen examples of how it's creeping back, put to bed in the 1960s and the early 70s when through the New York Times versus Sullivan case and the Pentagon Papers case, it became, mm. it was affirmed by our Supreme Court that rough language against those who govern us is not an element of sickness, but it's an element of health of a free society. We're able to look at our leaders critically. We're able to criticize them. We're able to say what we wish. You know, talking about sex, there's been less regulation of sex material, you know, in the last 50 years than any time. And that has been remarkable. Are we in a period of backsliding? I think so. Is the internet one of the most astounding free speech devices on earth? Yes. Am I able to speak and be heard by a shopkeeper in sub-Saharan Africa? Yes. Am I able to self-publish without the intercession of anyone else? Yes. Is Facebook the greatest censorship machine the world's ever known? Yes. It's all happening at once. And so there's been this explosion of speech and this terror of what it's ringing at the same time. In the highest reaches of our Supreme Court, now there's uh, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch have voiced their opinions broadly and directly that New York Times versus Sullivan, which for those who don't know it, was this case, pretty much protected media from anything but the most outrageous attacks on government that Thomas and Gorsuch have now said it's time to revisit that. That's bad law. That in the Pentagon Papers case, which allowed the exposure of government secrets. So the 50 years or so that that decision has been around is now, and once you start to criticize it, we've seen it over and over again. It sounds like a voice in the dark, and then before we know it, the voice in the dark is the voice. There's very little about Trump that hasn't been said, but his his readiness to 
deploy the arms of government against those who criticize him or who criticized his policies, if that's what you call them, <laughs> is famous. He's not alone. He's just the most obvious about it. The French president, Sarkozy, had a little hobby, suing people who criticized him. It goes on. Boris Johnson was the same thing. But they're getting a little bit more confident about that. The advent of the internet has created a counter-reaction that I think is in many ways very, very dangerous. There's bills, well, there's a lot of bills in the United States to quell free speech online. The First Amendment is probably going to protect us from most of them, but there is no First Amendment anywhere else. Yeah. There's so much more that I'd like to ask you, but for the sake of time, I am curious now that we're in the present day, you wrote this book in 2020, right? Which it's forever challenging to complete a history book at the same time that history is still continuing to be made, but especially so given that there's been so much turmoil in the years since 2020. So speaking now over the past three years, is there any event that you would be more inclined to highlight or most inclined to highlight should you be adding some type of addendum right, to dangerous ideas? Is there anything in the past three years that's really stuck out to you as noteworthy? You know, it's interesting. I drove my publishers fully insane. I kept on calling and saying, wait a minute, this just happened. This book is going to come out in six, eight months. If it's not in the book, we're screwed. And they finally just said to me, enough already. Okay, this book is what it is. So yes, yeah, that's a terrific question. And one thing that I did do, and I think if I had the chance to rewrite things, I would spend a lot more time on what I just was talking about, on the cracking of the edifices that protect our free speech, such as Times versus Sullivan and, and the others, and spend, just go much deeper into that. I would go much deeper into the impulse to give corporations the right of speech, which is what's happening now. Corporations don't exist, okay? They exist on paper. And there are ways to gather capital to make big investments, but they don't wet their beds when they're two years old. They're not humans. And our very pro-business Supreme Court is giving corporations and companies rights that resemble humans, cancel culture, and on the assault of free speech in schools and on campuses, not only in the United States, but elsewhere. I drew the conclusion that in the world that I was living in, in 2018 and 19, when I wrote the book, it struck me that this was mostly people who were kind of wringing their hands, but in, in the end, I didn't see a very broad effect on it. That just isn't the case. I think that the adoption of European ideas of hate speech, in brief, America allows hate speech, thinking that if your feelings get hurt too bad, that's good for, you know, the society's benefited from a few hurt feelings, but Europe and the rest of the world protect people much more from hurt feelings. America is very quickly adopting offense and hurt feelings as a standard for regulating speech. And I think the locus is really on campus. And I would spend a lot more time on the current efforts to rewrite history happening in schools. I touched on it, but the dozens and dozens and dozens of bills downplaying the experience of slavery. There's one bill in Florida that mandates teachers to say that slavery actually wasn't such a bad thing for a lot of people, etc. I would carve out more time from one piece of the book and give a lot more real estate to that.
Well, thank you so much for all of that. As a final question, I'd always like to ask if there's anything else that you'd like to share that you think is important for for listeners to know that we haven't talked about so far. But I would like to ask you to keep our student audience in mind as you share maybe a piece of advice. Talking about campus censorship in particular, uh, untextbooked appeals to a lot of students. And so is there anything that you would like to say in conclusion to students who are just broaching the free speech realm in the present day or are maybe facing more universal tendencies, right, to silence speech we dislike? Okay. To whatever students are listening, just feel free to turn this off now <laughs> if you think, yeah, I don't want to listen to this old guy. But the, <laughs> the thing that I would really encourage is a little bit of mindfulness when our feelings get hurt. We're allowed to have hurt feelings. I'm one of the touchiest people that I know, and it's very, very easy to hurt me. But at the same time, I always have to remind myself, do my hurt feelings, what comes first, society or the individual? I think we're becoming a world in which our individual feelings, our individual experience, our individual sense of right to be free from assault mentally is thought to trump the right of others to speak and say things that we don't want to hear. When someone says something hideous, it doesn't become less hideous when we seek to silence them. It simply takes the hideousness and puts it someplace else. One of the themes that we haven't talked about in this podcast is that censorship never works. Ideas that are censored always come out in another form and often in a mutated, horrible form. And so I think as we engage in self-care, and I think that the students' generation now is much better at it than we were, and I admire them for that. I really do. I think we, we stuffed our feelings a lot more than we, that is my generation, than we should have. But at the same time, we are citizens of a broader polity, and we have to try and broaden our sense of personhood into a sense of collective. And that collective does include people we don't like. We could vote against them. We could do a hundred things that we don't want that to try and defeat them politically. But to utterly silence people is, I think, more often than not a bad choice. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for this conversation and for your time today. This is a great conversation. Thanks for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you again to our author, Eric Berkowitz. His book is Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West from the Ancients to Fake News. This really is an incredible book, and there's so much more to it that couldn't be fit into this short episode. You got to check it out for yourself. So Carly, what did you learn from putting together this episode? Free speech has been a niche interest of mine for a little while now, but my conversation with Eric has reminded me that it really isn't a niche topic at all. It's actually incredibly relevant, but on a very basic level, and it has been for thousands of years. In some ways, I think we can be reassured by the fact that censorship isn't a new concept. Communities have overcome it before, and we can do it again. At the same time, I think we need to take the censorship of the present day seriously. We need to consider historical examples and remind ourselves that censorship never works, and free speech is absolutely essential in pluralistic societies. We're living in a period of severe polarization, where the internet allows us to argue and become offended more readily than ever. Still, we need to value the principle of free speech above our desire to eliminate ideas that we dislike. 
after reading a book like Eric's, we should know better. That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Carly Shepard. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Follow Untextbooked wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. We have some amazing history in store for you. Find us at untextbooked.com. You can sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. If you want to see behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. If you love the show, leave us a review. Special shout-out to one listener who wrote, I love this podcast and the people hosting it. Well, I just have to say, we love our listeners. So thank you for listening and writing that awesome review. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain and Cece Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. Mm-hmm.